the first step that you have to take in a new environment is to survey what the resources are, what the elements of a particular, say, program uh, are. Once you have mapped out all of that, you begin to see where the gaps are and what needs to what needs your attention and where you have to lobby for resources. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we're very fortunate to be joined by Aviva Abosh. We've been wanting to get Aviva on for some time. We wanted to record her last year, but she's just simply so busy with so many things going on. And so I'm going to try to introduce her properly here. Aviva is the uh, new chair at Nebraska. Before that, she was in Denver. She's well known around the world for her accomplishments and publications in functional neurosurgery, but also in her leadership role. So welcome to the podcast, Aviva. Thanks so much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so these are interesting times, right? And so, you know, it's it's one of these things where um, I I was just talking to the residents about this concept of like trying to get a lot of stuff done and multitasking. And, and, and then one of the things that comes up is they often, when they multitask, they kind of lose focus. And we talked to Dr. Alex Kalesi, another chair from San Diego about this, and he was talking about how folks don't know how to multitask as well anymore, but maybe people also don't know how to focus. And so, you know, you're you're encountering all these new challenges as a chair in a very a new place, right? Uh, I assume you're not from Nebraska, and right. that's correct, right? And so, so how do you maintain a, a sort of like a laser focus on the goals, the many many goals you have to accomplish? That's a great question, Mike. I um, uh, it's a deliberate process, I would say, um, because when I'm not deliberate about it, meaning that I don't force myself to sit down weekly, monthly, quarterly, et cetera, and, and remind myself about what my goals are, both professionally and personally, I lose track of things. And so I'm not saying that works for everyone uh, or everyone needs to do it in that fashion, but I know that for me, that has been invaluable. Um, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a process of every week, every month, you know, quarterly, annually, forcing yourself in, in a meaningful way to think about what your goals are uh, from a professional standpoint. You know, so now my goals in this department, for this department of neurosurgery at University of Nebraska Medical Center, my goals in the larger context of UNMC, you know, the, the medical center, my goals nationally vis-a-vis the service organizations that I'm involved in, uh, and and obviously not losing track of what my goals are on a personal side, which relates to my family and myself. Wow, that's such an important point to make, um, to think about the structured approach to your days and to your years, to really quantify and think about what are the things I need to be doing um, on a day-to-day basis, on a quarterly basis, on a yearly basis, and all those di- different spheres of life. 
Um, as I probably too frequently ramble about on the show, I have a background in psychology. And one of the interventions that has been often demonstrated to be quite effective in helping people organize their lives is to actually physically find some practice, be it making a list at the start of the day or setting aside an actual quantified period of time to review things each day um, just to keep themselves in check. Are there any little tips or tricks like that that you use to keep yourself organized either daily or quarterly or what have you? Yeah. Um, so I had the luxury of structuring our office suite, you know, our new off office suite with um, the um, move of the old division of neurosurgery into um, the department of neurosurgery. So that was both a, a kind of a change in essence, but also a change in uh, physical logistics. So when mm. I started on July 1, the Division of Neurosurgery, which has a long history here at UNMC, transitioned into the Department of Neurosurgery and, and moved out from the structure of the Department of General Surgery. So I became the inaugural chair of neurosurgery and also had to sit down with architects and designers and uh, create the space that we then moved into. So um, although i not really you know, destined for a career in design, uh, and really, really don't enjoy that aspect. I never thought I'd have to sit and pick out, you know, um, upholstery patterns. Um, it was a very useful exercise to think about not only the existing faculty and uh, uh, nurse practitioners, APPs, you know, uh, PAs, and surgery schedulers, uh, program coordinators, et cetera, in our in our department, in our inaugural department, but where we were headed, what the goal was for the department. And in creating that space with the potential for growth embedded in it, um, I asked for and, and received these enormous sliding whiteboards in my office. And on, the, on those boards, I keep the plan, which gets modified every six months. And, you know, with boxes to check off as we, you know, negotiate our VA contract, um, you know, um, hire new uh, advanced practice providers for the clinic and the inpatient space, et cetera. You know, whatever the, the, the immediate goals are and the long range goals are, you start, you know, it's, it's a physical reminder every time I walk into the office of where we're headed and it changes obviously, but that's why it's a whiteboard. Yeah. Wow. That, that's so interesting to think that right when you're taking on a new job and you have all these new responsibilities and new decisions to make and things to structure, you're also thrown on your plate the task of physically structuring a space. And I imagine that could be kind of daunting. Um, but having navigated that successfully, I'm sure, did you find that that experience and, and the skills you necessarily developed to structure that space effectively translated to any other aspect of your life, be it professionally or even at home? Well, I, I think it's it's a bit of a metaphor, right? So you can then start off your faculty meetings and the, the welcome of the new residents with, uh, with images from the new space. And the message is pretty clear that we're, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, but we're moving forward into a new existence, um, new people, new ideas, uh, and a new um, vision and, and mission statement, essentially. So I, I think there, it was very powerful to do that. Um, I would say that um, I have not translated the design um, 
advice and tips that I picked up from the architects and the designers into my own personal space, uh, as well as I, I could have. But um, it does help to, to have a glimpse into the way they approach um, issues of behavioral happiness with workspaces and um, uh, colors that are used or not to be used in public spaces, things like that. I mean, we don't really think about the human elements of the workplace as much as we should. So that was, that was very, that was kind of eye-opening for me. So Aviva, let me just once again, congratulate you on taking over the department. And I've already heard about the wonderful things going on there. And, um, it, it's 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 a it's a great thing that's happening in Nebraska, and, and it's a great contribution to that great state. I I really enjoyed what you're saying about making the lists and the, the the diagramming on your office wall. I had a big whiteboard put in my probably much smaller office than yours when I first moved to Miami, and I love it because it's a constant visual reminder. But let me ask you, as a functional neurosurgeon, right? You're the closest to understanding the function of the brain of neurosurgeons. Do do you? Do you see that as something that developed in you? Was it something maybe when you were an intern, you were making lists, you got good at this, or was this something you did when you were in high school or college? And maybe also along those lines, we have a lot of younger listeners. For people who maybe are a little less organized, what can they use as tools and crutches you know, before they get their giant offices with the big whiteboards? What can they do to, to, to do this from a neuroscience perspective to be better organized and focused and yet multitask? Well, I will say that um, long before I had the whiteboards, I had, and we all have access to, the ability to make organizational diagrams. Um, You know, we do this on PowerPoint, right? Or any number of software programs that allow us to create flowcharts and um, uh, maps of various elements of what we do. So, you know, when I I have, you know, I started my professional career at Emory, then I moved uh, to University of Minnesota, from University of Minnesota, I moved to University of Colorado, and then uh, here. So that's four different environments. And in each one of those environments, I have been tasked with programmatic development, you know, building stereotactic and functional neurosurgery, building research divisions, that sort of thing. And the, the first the first step that you have to take in a new environment is to survey what the resources are, what the elements of a particular, say, program uh, are on the ground. And that means everything from personnel, faculty, you know, colleagues in, in various departments, where they live, what their drivers are, uh, to the staff and the resources in the hospital and the clinics uh, and in the research environment. And so once you have mapped out all of that, you begin to see where the gaps are and what needs to, what needs your attention and where you have to lobby for resources uh, with hospital administration or medical center administration. And so, you know, working forward to then how you grow a program uh, over the years, I think you can start to fill in those gaps. So I think very visually, I guess, in answer to your question, Mike, uh, and I like to map things out as opposed to thinking of them, things in terms of uh, completed paragraphs. And so when I can visualize it, I can then get a handle around what we, what we have, what we need, and where we need to get to. So um, I guess I have 
you know, what laid the groundwork for that kind of a, an approach is that I've always had an interest in in the visual side of things. Uh, it's one of the things that appeals to me about neurosurgery, quite frankly, um, which is the 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 visual beauty of what we do. Um, the the technical and visual aspects of what we do is very important. Has always been very important to me. Um, and, uh, you know, my background in art, I think, led me to this focus on being able to get a visual handle on whatever problem I'm facing and, and how to take the next steps. Hmm. Now, if I could indulge in my urge to take us a little further into left field, thinking about the concept of focus within neurosurgery, um, we've addressed kind of the, the focus of a day or a month or a year and, and thinking about the tasks to be accomplished. But if we could also think about that focus in terms of who we all are as individuals working in this field, um, at my own stage, at this point, I could be any kind of neurosurgeon. I could go private practice. I could stay in academics. I could subspecialize or remain a generalist. Um, but every stage that all of us talking right now have gone through has been step-by-step -step of differentiation from medical school to residency and now, obviously, yourself further down the road than I, you've subspecialized, you've made a transition into an administrative role. And with each of those steps, I feel there is some level of focus that has to be maintained, not only on where you want yourself to go with that step of differentiation, but who you are maintaining throughout each step. So if you could kind of advise our younger listeners and myself going through that process behind you. How did you maintain your inner sense of self as well as keeping your eyes ahead on where you wanted your career to go step by step? How did you maintain that focus in your development as a neurosurgeon? Uh, so I guess, you know, it, it's, it, it, I don't mean to make it sound easy. You know, these are the, some of the most um, difficult exercises possible is you know, to, to think about all of the things that we're asked to do in a given day, a given week, you know, and decide what to do. But if you take that, what should I do next? Or should I say yes to this or no to this? And you reduce it kind of in a first principles way to who am I? You know, what is it, what is it that motivates me? You know, I talked about knowing other people's drivers. You have to know your own drivers, too. And so it, it, for me, you know, I always come back to what is it about academic neurosurgery, which is the space that I live in and have come to professional maturity in, what is it about academic neurosurgery that appeals to me? And, you know, I have had transitions in my life where I've been exceedingly frustrated with an academic environment a given academic medical center and thought about taking a position outside of academic medicine. And that, that forces, or that should force the question of who am I? What am I about? Would I be happy doing this versus that? And you, you need to be able to answer that question, right? Uh, you know, that's not unique to academic neurosurgery. Anybody needs to be able to answer that question. It's, it's really, it's, it's, it's an existential question, essentially. Like what are the things that make me happy and feel fulfilled. Along those lines, Aviva, uh, you know, let's assume that you have chosen a role or you're locked in that role for a period of time. 
it's also very common for, as you've already mentioned, things to sort of get in the way or make you question why you're doing this and, and lend to a loss of focus or a loss of the ability to maintain a, a, an eyesight on that goal, right? So, so I think we've all been in those situations numerous times. What do you personally do to recalibrate? get back on message with yourself, to get back in line with your goals, understanding that sometimes those questions do result, as, as JP saying, in a complete revisitation of the primary uh, mission, if you will. But yeah. let's assume you're going to maintain mission. How do you get back to that goal when, when things discourage you, maybe? Yeah. So, so the things that draw me to academic neurosurgery have always been the, you know, the mission of providing cutting-edge clinical care. Um, training the next generation because none of us are irreplaceable uh, and then pushing forward what we can do for patients, whether that's basic science, translational science research or um, uh, clinical research. And as long as I feel like I'm pushing forward those three missions, it's much, much easier to sweat the little stuff. And so, you know, when I, when I have these crises, if you will, in my professional life where I wonder, you know, where I become unhappy because something isn't going the way I thought, you know, there's a disconnect be between what I had planned and how things are turning out, that's always, in, in addition to those kind of deliberate sit-down sessions where I think about where I'm headed, that will force a reevaluation of what I'm doing and whether or not I meet the, I know, I don't question the goal that I'm, I'm reaching for. Uh, but there are certainly times when I feel like I'm failing in some aspect of that mission. And then that forces a reassessment of why I, why I feel that way, what's not going right and how I can modify either my approach or my environment to get back on track. Wow. You know, thinking about that level of introspection, and retrospection on on your prior career leading to today, um, and you know talking about recognizing the drivers and others as well as yourself, you know within your role in academic neurosurgery, I'm sure you you've trained countless residents at this point. So if you could speak either from your own experience or from those that you've observed around you at, at any professional level, what um, what have been the greatest threats you've seen to individuals' focus? What things have really tried to take someone off the path? And if you have any observations, uh, how have you seen people get back on their path? Uh, yeah. Uh, so thinking about a relatively recent example, um, you know, I think that there's, we're, we are geared as humans and probably as neurosurgeons, given our, our training path, uh, to focus on the little, you know, the day-to-day -day battles and whether or not we're winning those. And, and it's very easy to lose sight of the, of the master plan. And you can go down this rabbit hole where you feel like you're losing the individual battles and, and, you know, your, your efforts are meaningless. Um, and, and, and moods can spiral because of that. And so having those kind of, having the ability to refocus people, particularly, um, you know, when they're rising up through the ranks on what's important, I think really helps kind of even out the path and even out the, the emotional highs and lows. Uh, I'm not saying it's always perfect. And I'm not, I, I would never imply that my approach is 
is perfect or the only way. And um, I certainly suffer from the same things that I see in my trainees from time to time and in, in my faculty. But, you know, you become watching other people work through this and trying to guide them through it, I think gives a lot of insight, not only for them, I hope, but also for, for myself and, um, you know, how to, how to approach future, future issues. I don't know if I answered your question, but I am, um, you know, it's certainly something that, um, that, uh, you know, I, people, because we're human, we struggle with, you know, w- mm-hmm. what am I, I mean, I will say that, that when you look at the data on burnout across the subspecialties of medicine, the striking thing to me is always that neurosurgeons have lousy work-life balance, but relatively low burnout compared to right. other specialties. And so you have to ask yourself why that is, you know, are we uniquely better at knowing where we're headed, you know, and therefore there's less disconnect between where we're headed and, you know, our sense of fulfillment than other, than other subspecialties or, you know, what, what is the explanation? So Aviva, um, I wanted to, to not point this out too much because you're so accomplished, but nobody can get around you know, the fact that you are a female neurosurgeon, right? And I didn't want to dwell too much on that, but you're one of, is it only three in the country right now? Is that correct? Uh, so it's um, Linda Liao at UCLA, uh, Shelly Timmons at uh, uh, University of Indiana, uh, myself, um, and Marasco at University of Michigan. So there's yeah. four of us now, which oh, is... right, because Shelly is a new chair, right? Just like you, Shelly's new. Yeah. yeah. So if, if you could, because we have a lot of female listeners, a lot of young uh, neurosurgeons or people getting into neurosurgery, can you offer up a message? Uh, you're our first um, female chair that we're interviewing, right? Offer up a message for the younger folks uh, in college, medical school, residency, about what it's like, or maybe some words of advice or encouragement for them. Oh, yeah. Um, I I would say pursue your passions. Um, Be the best that you can be at what you're doing. And, um, you know, stay true to what your goals are. Um, There's nothing profound in any of that. But, you know, people... The, the field is changing. It's changing much, much slower than, than I am comfortable with. But I can tell you that when I was a medical student, you know, we didn't have 50% or 52% female graduates. So that's changed. You know, now 52% of, of medical school graduates in the United States are female. Now you can, you can say, well, neurosurgery hasn't really changed that much in 20 years. And that would be totally correct. Unfortunately, you know, the percentage of, uh, board certified female neurosurgeons in academic medicine has, has remained around 6% for the last easily a decade plus plus. Um, but you know, Corinne Marasco was the first female chair of an American, of a U.S. Uh, um, nurse, actually of a North American neurosurgery program. And now we have four people total. So it goes slowly, but, but there is forward, there is positive change. Um, you know, the notion that I, when I was a resident, that I would need to have a mentor who was female would have been useless because there weren't any 
female neurosurgeons at UCSF when I was training. And there were no female um, neurosurgeons at Pittsburgh when I was a medical student there. Um, or when I was training at, you know, the Montreal Neurologic or at University of Toronto. But time has changed and it's now far less exceptional to have women on faculty at academic institutions in neurosurgery. It's far less exceptional to have female deans, even though there's nothing like parity. But, you know, the world changes when people see with their own direct observation that you're in a role and you can do the job. And the same is true for the patients that we treat. It's been a long time since a patient has looked at me and assumed I was the nurse. So patients, patients' behavior and perceptions uh, have changed over the, the time that I've been in this profession. That's not to say that it's not frustrating, um, because I think sometimes it's, you know, it's easy to be critical of your own profession, but the reality is that search committees are composed of people from various subspecialties and tend to have men and women in equal numbers on them. And yet search committees, I think, sometimes have more biases than my colleagues do, than my neurosurgical colleagues do, and about what a neurosurgeon should look like or doesn't look like. And so I think that it's, you know, we lag behind, say, the business community uh, in the United States by a lot. Um, we lag behind other procedural specialties in medicine, for instance, orthopedics. But you have to start somewhere. And I think the more women who rise through neurosurgical societies, like Shelley did, being Shelley Timmons as the first uh, female neurosurgeon to be president of the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, that's very powerful. She's in that position. She was in that position for a good reason. Um, any number of good reasons. And so I think you have to dwell on what's positive about your environment and your field and, and move things forward. Wow. Well, I, I think it's more than a slight undersell to uh, suggest that anything you just said was not profound, though often the truth is not profound. It's uh, simply true. Um, but on behalf of someone far behind you in this field who's still coming up and you know, advancing through it myself. Uh, thank you for all the thoughts and insights that you shared with us today. Um, I feel like I could keep talking to you for hours and hours, but out of respect for your time, um, I think we should draw this episode to a close. So uh, Dr. Abosh, thank you so much for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast. We certainly hope to have you back again. Oh, thanks so much. And thanks for what you guys are doing. I think this is a great uh, forum for exchanging ideas. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.